WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. And NPR. Who's the gentleman we're on the air with? Oh, there's going to be two of us. So one of them Whoa. is named Jad. That's not me. His name is Jad. Like his parents call him Jad. Jad. But it's Jad, really. Had they been drinking? <laughs> no, they're Lebanese. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> so uh, we're going to begin the show with this delightful duo. I'm Julie. Julie Moss. I'm Wendy. Wendy Ingram. Hi, Julie. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Jad. Hi, Dad. They've been friends for a really long time. Remember that one time you bought all that? Everything in a tube. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they both like to travel. They both like to shop. And they both like to run really long distances until they collapse, usually in front of millions of people. Now, Wendy... Wendy was a classic athlete from day one. Was apparently born this way. Her mother tells me how she had to channel her energy into sports. Yeah. I always considered myself a science project. What do you mean? We, we've been created. We have hands, feet. We have a mind. We have lungs. We have a heart. Let's see what it can do. Wendy, we're very opposite in that, in huh. that respect. Julie... Julie is an entirely different story, and we're going to tell you that story in just a moment. But first, we should say this is Radiolab. I'm Jad Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krilwich. Our topic today is limits. Limits of the body. Right. Start there. Then the limits of the brain. And finally, the limits of what we can know about everything. Julie, how did you get interested in this uh, race that you're about to tell us about? Was it like a... Like an impulse or something? Well, no, it was a requirement to graduate. Oh. I had <laughs> I had to do a, um, it's called a senior senior project. I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in California, and I, I was a PE major, which now I... I like phys ed, you mean? Yeah, and I that was just by default. I was a California surfer girl. I started surfing at 14, but I needed a senior project, and there I was in um, 1981 watching TV instead of studying and on comes ABC Wild World Sports. Brought to you by Anheuser-Busch Natural Light. The Iron Man. From Hawaii. And I watched it and it just sucked me in. This must have been like really early Iron Man. Oh, it, yeah, I think it was the fourth one. And I thought, it's in Hawaii, it's great. I know my mom will pay for it because this is, I have to do this project for school. And so I started doing research on it. And this, just so we know, this is you, you, you swim, you bike, you run, that's the order? You swim 2.4 miles, you ride 112 miles, and then you run a marathon. Wow. So it was... But wait a second, though. Go ahead. That seems like a major decision to want to go 140. I mean, were you a triathlete-type person at that no. point in your life? <laughs> Had you ran no, a marathon before? I, it, it was conceptual. Those were just the distances. <laughs> Those were numbers. That wasn't reality. It was just you were in Hawaii. <laughs> 
By the time I got off the plane to do the Ironman, I still hadn't completed the total distance that I'd need to do on the bike or the swim. Oh, my God. But I wasn't going over there to be competitive. I was going over there to do this event, have fun in Hawaii, and then I'll write up some sort of bogus, you know, (laughs) physiological consequences or something. But I really just, I, I thought I was taking the easy way out. When you got off the bus or you walked into the room where the other ones were, did you suddenly think, uh oh? Yeah, I mean, people were taking it very seriously. People had coordinated outfits. And <laughs> they, <laughs> I thought, I'm feeling a little like um, the country mouse, you know. So I, I think when race day rolled around, it was it was sort of my day to get through and never do again. I mean, it was really, this is a one-time thing. So, so, so shall we run the race? Yeah, so, okay, let's just, you do the first two legs, the swimming and then the biking. I'm the doing really well. You see me on the bike, I'm riding along, I mean, from the old coverage of ABC. I'm smiling at the camera. I'm certainly not in an aerodynamic position. (laughs) Why would you want to be all crouched over when you could be sitting up smiling? That was your beauty queen turn? I was. I I was doing parade waves. I really was. Loving the attention. And um, I had a Snickers bar early on the bike ride. And I I keep thinking, if I'd only eaten that Snickers bar instead of throwing it away, Mm. ABC came up on a camera and there I was trying to open this melted Snickers bar with my teeth and all of a sudden there's a camera and it's like oh my gosh I don't want to be messy on national TV so I ditched this this beautiful (laughs) Snickers bar and you know yeah yeah Okay, skipping to the third leg of the race Julie's through the swim she's through the 112 mile bike ride onto the marathon. I came off the bike. Uh, they told me there's a woman ahead of you. And she was a top-notch cyclist. Oh, um, so you were in second place. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. How did that happen? I, know. I was doing really well, and I started on the run. And the one gal who had had a great bike ride had a, uh, an Achilles injury. And sure enough, by I think about eight miles or so, I caught her. And there I am in the lead. Wow. And all of a sudden, it was a little... Um, Things started to shift. I'm, I'm, I'm good at something. Yeah. And somebody's trying to take it away from me. And that was the woman who was in second place, Kathleen McCartney. And even though she was a mile away, it felt like she was breathing down my neck and trying to take something that now I was becoming very attached to. I was also starting to fall apart physically. What were those early signs? Um, cramping. And a feeling that you weren't digesting your food, that everything was sort of sitting there sloshing around. Wendy's laughing. And she's, this is a serious moment, and she's laughing about it. Like, mm. In any case, finally Julie makes it to the last little itty-bitty stretch of the race. Probably about, oh, about 400 meters from the finish. And she's still in first place. So, Julie, let's do this. I'm actually, as we're talking, I'm watching you on uh, YouTube. Oh, stinker. Well, I just want you to take me into your head in these final moments because it's, it's just like it's unwatchable, but you can't turn away. Yeah, it's a train wreck. So I'm looking at you now and you're running and it's dark. Mm-hmm. There's people like on both sides cheering you. Mm-hmm. And so you're running, then you're slowing down. Then you're really slowing down. Mm-hmm. And you're walking a little bit like you're on stilts. And then, like right here, your legs give out. They give out. And I couldn't get back up. I mean, I I thought, get up, and my legs wouldn't work. 
So I actually, I sort of laid there on the ground and um, figured out if I put my arms in front of me and leaned on my arms, they would sort of form like a tripod and I could sort of lean on my arms and kind of got one leg up and one leg up and, and kind of staggered to a walk and started walking again. All right, now you're walking again, but you're like... Drunk monkey. Yeah, really wobbly. Yeah. Now all this time, you're conscious that number two is getting closer and closer, or you, or you are, are you conscious of her at all? Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. And I had to keep finding a way to keep going, and my thought was, this is mine. Oh, you just fell again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, this is the one that gets me right here. You fall down, and it's and your arms go back. It's like you're dying. Yeah. And um, as I was putting one hand in front of the other, I saw this this pair of tennies go by and uh, these legs, and I thought, "That's her. She's gone by me." And it was just, I just thought, I quit. I just thought, I can't say it on national public radio, but F it. Yeah. F it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's this voice that just said, get up. Get up. Just keep moving forward. Yeah. I could see the finish line about 10 feet in front of me, and I thought, get up. I cannot. I can't get up again. I really, I get up. Do not think I, I've, I've sort of worn out that tactic. Get up. But I can crawl. Nobody, what happened? Look at this. Oh my God. And I crawl. And so here I am coming along, and the, and the TV camera lights are blinding me, and, and no one's helping her. My life was going to be different. I mean, I felt my life changing. I made a deal with myself. A deal was struck. And I don't care if it hurts. I don't care if it's messy. I don't care how it looks. I would finish. I would finish. I would finish. So Julie Moss crawls the last 10 feet of the race literally an inch at a time. And that whole time, the cameras are on her and they capture everything. And I mean everything. Yeah. I, um, I pooped my pants on national TV. It doesn't get more shameful than from that. Wendy teases me all the time. You know, you were a chocolate mess from, you know, <laughs> one way line? or the other. You can get up here and do this next thing. Yeah, but it was, it, was a, it was a pivotal moment in my life. And to this day, Julie says, the person she is now, it all began with... That voice that, uh, that I hadn't ever called upon. That just said keep moving forward. But that's the thing that gets to me. It's like it didn't say to you, you can't. It, it actually said exactly the opposite. I don't Isn't that cool? I would have thought it would have said, stop. Come yeah, on, stop. Lie I, down. That's what you look lie like. Down. Lie down. Lie down. No, that's, your e- that's your ego. That's your ego that will come in and sabotage. Your real self, there is no limit. You know, I really believe that. Uh, you do? And I just, I absolutely do. No, no limit. No. Nope. 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 Yeah. No. <laughs> Let's take seriously what Julia Moss just said, uh, that there are no limits. 
think she meant well, psychologically, I mean, but I mean, yes, I mean they were obviously limits. If she we, well, yes, but she could die. You could die. Yeah, but short of that, you would say it is her muscles that are determining the limits, right? Exactly, and and the cell, your muscle cell. Yeah, let's just question that for a second. <laughs> Let me introduce you to a guy. His name is uh, what's his name? David Jones. His name is David Jones. Hi. Hi. That's him. He's a retired physiologist. At Metropolitan University. And he's got a slight condition that interferes with his speech, just so you know. Okay. Anyways, he did a study, two studies actually, that involved bikers. These are experienced cyclists. He'll have these people ride stationary bikes for really long distances. Yep. All the while, he'll shoot their muscles full of sugar, mm. like with an IV. And you can actually get extremely high levels of glucose in the blood. How much? Like a whole energy drink's worth of sugar? Straight into their blood? Oh, more than that. Probably probably several energy drinks. Oh. Now, theoretically, if it's your muscles that are controlling how far and fast you bike, you should get this injection and just be like, phew! They should be performing miracles, that's right. But it never works. It never works. Yeah, the people who, who have sugar in their muscles do the same as the people who don't. That's right. I mean, it doesn't work at all? It made absolutely no difference in their performance. Whoa, bad news for sugar. <laughs> and what it suggests is that our muscles have way less to do with our limits than we think, which raises the obvious question, what is making the difference? Mm. So now I'm going to tell you about this second study, which I completely like find mind-blowing, although it's a hard study to summarize, but I'm going to try. Okay. You say you with me? I'm with you so far. You haven't started yet, though. That's always a good place to be. I need your full uh, participation and uh, interest. Okay. Okay, so he does a study where he puts a bunch of bikers on bikes and he has them pedal a lot. It's about 40 kilometers. Long distance. Yeah. Now, he's got two groups. Each group gets an energy drink, mm -hmm. which they sort of have to drink. While biking. While biking, except that they don't drink it. The rule is they don't actually drink it. They just swish it in their mouth. Spit it out. Swish and spit. That's right. That's what they do. Swish, spit, bike. Swish, spit, bike. Whoa, wouldn't want to be the towel guy in this particular experiment. Well, apparently they have scientists with buckets <laughs> who just stand next to them. And, and they spit into the bucket. Okay. So half the people get real energy drink to swish and spit. Yep. Half the people get fake energy drink to swish and spit. And they both taste the same. And nobody knows who's getting what. It's a double blind experiment. So you would think in this scenario that nobody should get any benefit from this because no one's actually drinking the drink. Nothing's getting into the body. Mm -hmm. Or let's say like the taste creates a placebo effect. Well, then everybody should get the placebo effect equally. Everybody should get it. But here's the thing. Only the people who swished, swished, not drank, but swished the real energy drink got a boost. Oh. How much of a boost? It's, it's a minute or a couple of minutes. Whoa, that's a lot. Yeah, a minute. That's the difference between you know, finishing first and last. Yeah. So let me think here, but don't say anything for a minute. Let me just okay. think about this. So maybe something in the first set of athletes who got the real drink, something inside them knew something. Yeah! Here's the, the big theory. You want the little theory or the big one first? Well, I'd like the big theory briefly. Okay, the big one, briefly. There's an idea that's been floating around for a while called the central governor theory which is that inside your head there's this little circuit, which you're starting to see on brain scans, but there's this little circuit that governs your energy supply. And when it feels like you're in danger of running low, it'll trigger signals of pain to be sent to your body to try and get you to rest. Now, what scientists are finding is that this governor circuit 
is really conservative. It'll send you a pain to try and get you to stop way before you are out of juice. So if you were a fuel tank, they would flash E, E, E for empty. But, but you got a quarter empty. tank left. Mm. So what might be happening with these bikers is that the sugar is landing on their tongue. The tongue sees the sugar, sends a message to the brain. The governor sees this message and says, oh, if we're about to get some energy, then it's okay for you to spend some energy. And let me just give you some from my secret stash over here. And so you feel a boost. So the conjecture here is you have a reservoir of extra stuff, but it is so deeply disguised that you can't even know that it's there. Exactly. And to skip to the punchline, when you feel tired, Mr. K, Mm -hmm. not just tired, when you are dead. Spent. When you are spent, which does not feel like a subjective thing at all. That feels like an objective reality. You are done. Well, in fact, at that moment, maybe you're not. Maybe you're just feeling the effects of that little governor lying to you. Oh. Which raises the question, what if you could lie back to her? Then, how far could you go? Hmm. So, with all that in mind, we're going to kick it up a notch. Let me tell you about this competition called The Ride Across America. It should really be called The Ride Into the Hellfire Depths of Despair, but we're going to call it uh, The Ride Across <laughs> didn't America. didn't have quite the zing that the sponsor wanted. <laughs> Ride Into the Depths of Despair with Wrigley, Spear with Gum. We heard about this first from a reporter named Daniel Coyle. So what is The Ride Across America? It is basically... It's an insane event. You you get on a bike in California and you bike across the country, 3,000 miles, the equivalent of four Mount Everests, and they don't sleep. At all? No, they will sleep. They'll sleep uh, an hour a day, two hours a day. Um, an hour a day? Yeah. So if, it, if this is a 10-day race, they will sleep for 10 hours over the, the length of the race? Yeah. It's a race that is designed to reveal what human limits are. Who, who does it? Can you describe the kinds of people who are attracted to this? No, I think they come from all walks of life. They, they come from all over the globe. It's a really interesting cross-section. We actually got curious about this, so we sent our producer, Lulu Miller, to track down a few of these guys. Two guys. Who'd you find? Well, the first one. Yes. His name is Patrick. Patrick Otissier. I'm 47 years old from France. He's the rookie. <laughs> Had you done any kind of long-distance cycling before? No, no, not at all. <laughs> He's actually I, a scientist. Biologist, yeah. Got a wife, two kids. Okay. And then we've got the champion. Okay, hello, Yuri's here. So this is Yuri Robic. Hello. He's won this thing four times. Yeah, and on the back, he's a killer. My body, it's, I can go also in the rain or cold or the heat. His job is he's a soldier. Employed by a Slovenian army. What else? What would you like to know? Okay. 2005. So it's um, the start was at 7 a.m. in San Diego. Start at 9. You're going to win this year? Is it like 20 people or 100 people? 25, I think. So the tape you're hearing right now is actual footage from that day. Let's go, Turned out the year he did it, there was actually a film crew there following every single ride. And so I was, I mean, really scared. I mean, scared at him. <laughs> Not Yuri, though. No. He's just in front of Patrick. I'm really, uh, how to say in English, uh, I'm really sure in myself. <laughs> Four, three, two, one. Then... Uh, the race is on. It's easy. You just start your engine and go. 
But for me, I mean, since I didn't know what to expect, I was running very conservatively. At the back of the pack. 14 states, 3,000 miles to go. They don't go very fast. They'll cross the country going about 13, 14 miles an hour, which any 11-year-old can ride for a time. The difference is that they just don't stop. Seven hours later, California desert. Uh, It's really hot. My watch says 109 degrees. We're in the shade in the car. This is Steve Towdy, the camera guy following Patrick in a van. Patrick's out here climbing a hill. I've never experienced this kind of temperature. I mean, 110 Fahrenheit. Then, 150 miles later. Arizona. Rolling hills. Sunset. 200 miles. 300 miles. Then, the sun is rising. 400 miles. 500 miles. Utah. It's still very hot. And then? Colorado. The mountains, the big mountains. Yuri's in the lead. He's just crested the top of a 12-mile climb. It was during the middle of the night. It was it was raining, really heavy rain. He begins to coast downward. Descending without pedaling. And after two kilometers, I was completely frozen. Shaking like I was electric. Your butt is like a hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all red. You don't have any skin at all. I mean, the bike is the most efficient machine for creating suffering ever in <laughs> <laughs> The pressure's on your hands. The pressure is on your neck. <laughs> this is this British guy named Chris Hopkinson, halfway through the race, and his neck has just given out. People whose necks have given out will take duct tape and literally tie their heads up They'll, they'll put a cord to the back of their helmet and then pin it, say, to their belt. Jesus, God. So that they can look, because they can no longer hold their heads up. Oh, God. The pain is like waves, you know? And I, I don't know why it's that, but it, it is. Uh, it's, it's like waves. It's coming and it's going. It's coming and it's going. So, Lulu, assuming that the central governor circuits inside the heads of all these riders are creating those waves of pain... How do they soldier on? How do they ignore it? Well, I asked them that, and they each sort of have different techniques. So Patrick... He'll just start shouting back at it. Literally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And Yuri? Well, he gets his crew to come up alongside him and blare... Slovenian war songs. <laughs> Through the speakers, yeah, very loudly. Is that what we're hearing? It is. This is him on his bike during the race singing along. And all of this works for a while. But then, they hit the halfway point. Kansas. I don't know if you've been to Kansas, but don't live there. It's awful. The scenery gets really monotonous. Then you don't have any sightseeing, nothing. More than that, they've gone over a thousand miles without sleeping, basically. And that's where we see the sort of really interesting stuff start to happen. It's here that we can catch a glimpse of the hidden potential of the human body. 
if you've done everything, if you've handled the heat and hydration, if your infrastructure is solid, all the stress goes to the last point, which is the mind. Um, it came very suddenly. It was dark. Uh, we were in a forest. And very quickly, the environment got very um, aggressive. He said he saw shadows running across the road. It looked like the trees were trying to reach out to get him. I was starting to have nightmares, but I was awake. These kinds of hallucinations are just a fact of the race. People seeing secret code in the cracks of the road. Riders jumping off their bikes to square off and fight mailboxes. And it's what breaks a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> but strangely, these kinds of hallucinations might be the very key to Yuri's success. I saw everything. I mean, a lot of, like, monsters. Like zombies, he's oh. going to attack you, you know. And why would that help him? Well, to me it was really, think really, about yeah. why the central governor is in place. The system that's designed to always keep an emergency stash of energy there for you, should you ever need it. So those feelings of pain are really just a way of safeguarding that last little stash of energy that you could use if you absolutely had to. Yeah, like if your life was on the line or something. That's right. But what if you are convinced, and therefore your central governor was convinced, that your life really was on the line? <laughs> That year when Yuri got to Ohio? He, he hallucinated that there were um, Mujahideen, sort of Afghan horsemen, chasing him. Yeah, with a gun, with a shotgun, and I said to my crew hey, they are shooting us. Come on, come on, do something. We are soldiers. Do something to this guy, they are attacking us. The interesting thing about that is the, is the way in which his team sees him hallucinating, Mujahideen. And their reaction is, oh, yeah, we see them, too. Come on, Yuri, you might, you might escape. Wait, why? <laughs> because they because they're use... gaining on us. <laughs> they're gaining on us. It's funny, you know, but for me it was not funny. <laughs> they will use his hallucination as, as fuel, and they, they make no bones about it. And when you see that... That's Matyaz Planinchek, Yuri's crew chief. When you see him riding that fast after five, six days almost dying on the bike, and then suddenly he explodes, your hair... On your arm will go up, on your neck will go up, and then you know that's that's why you are there because uh, it's you don't want to miss that moment because this is something out of this world. Yuri says that during the hallucinations. I mean, the pain is gone. Does it go? Does it go away completely? Yeah. But the trade-off is that when he watches videos of himself like this, punching mailboxes and throwing his bike into a ditch, he says it's actually painful to watch. You know, it's really tough for me to look at myself in these videos, in these films. Uh, how do I, my behavior uh, is going. The reality is, he's looking at a madman. It's not me, that's, that's not me. Yeah. See, now I'm thinking, like, Daniel, like, if madness is the key, right, to tricking your central governor into giving you access to, the, to that energy, does that mean that, if Robert and I went mad in this that particular way, that we would suddenly be really athletic? I mean, are there actually seriously cases like that? <laughs> well, there was actually in the early 1900s, there was a doctor named Auguste Bier who noticed a mental patient making a leap in an asylum. And he measured the leap. And it compared rather favorably to the world record at the time. <laughs> what? Yeah. And he was one of the early sort of propagators of this governor theory that uh, obviously this patient from whom all the sort of governors have been lifted was capable of um, a feat of astounding strength. All right, so Lulu, what happened at the end of the race? Well, from Slovenia, Yuri wins. Yuri Robek. 
I want the ram. <laughs> that's that's something. And what about Patrick? Well, let's rewind a couple days. He's just crossed the halfway point in Mount Vernon, Kansas, and he decides to hop off his bike, take a quick break, and he's in the van. He checks his email. Just to, to give me some motivation. And he sees an email from one of his friends. He said, we're so sad that uh, the Dr. Breedloff accident. Patrick had no idea what this guy was talking about, but it appeared to suggest that one of the 25 riders, a guy named Dr. Bob Breedlove, had just been hurt. And so I asked one of my crew members, what happened with Dr. Breedlove? And he said, well, uh, he got an accident and he died. On the race, during the race? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when he's when he's when he told me this i mean immediately i was i was i mean i was i was i mean not i mean not only shocked but uh, i was done i understand patrick i feel bad too obviously i feel bad and so steve today the cameraman tried to to push me but it would be pointless to to stop here where you have a wide shoulder a van right behind you who's going to call and cecile and tell her oh uh, well sorry but uh Patrick just uh, fell down the road, and so he's hospitalized, or even 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 worse. I have kids and a wife. I went to, I went too far on this race. I understand, Patrick, but how far to the next time station? Why don't we go there? No, take I'm another... dead. I don't want to continue that. That's that's okay. I don't want to continue that. I'm just saying, let's not throw in the towel just yet. So after that, I mean, uh, I started riding again. But uh, for them, yeah. it was a magical night. It was very, uh, very warm, a beautiful night. No clouds, nothing. And as always, his crew is cheering him on, trying to pump him up. You're strong! Patrick, can I ask you why you're doing this? What? Can I ask you a question? Or don't you want to talk? Uh-huh. Why are you doing this? But he's not saying anything back for hours. Then, around one in the morning, Patrick says his mind just goes quiet. Completely silent. Out of that silence, he said he heard a voice that said simply, You stop. Stop. And so that's what I did. I said, I'm done. You done? You what? I'm done with the race. I'm done. You asked me a question earlier. Remember? Why I was doing that? Yeah, why are, we, why are you doing it? Because I just wanted to test my limit. Physical limit and mental. And I touched twice this limit. Yesterday morning and this morning. And I don't want to live that again. And, uh... I quit. That's it. Huh. I'm trying to figure out who I would honor more. Yeah. The winner of the race or the man who insisted on losing. I'm 40. I've got kids. I identified more with the guy who stopped. Yeah. Yeah. But I think also you, you see the guy who wins and it makes you ask big questions about what's possible. You know? Yeah. Like how do you do that? Yeah. I don't know that I'd want to be that guy or even hang out with him. Probably like the second guy. <laughs> I know I'd like the second guy. Oh, yeah. Dan, what do you think? I find myself looking at both of them kind of with my jaw on the floor. 
Daniel Coyle's latest book is called The Talent Code. And thanks, Lulu. Yeah, and a huge thanks to Stephen Auerbach, who made the film Bicycle Dreams. That's where all this footage came from. Hey, Michael, this is Wendy Ingram, and I apologize, I have a pretty bad cold. Radio Lab is funded in part by Alfred T. Stallone Foundation and the National Science Foundation. This is Julie Moss. Radio Lab is produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. Radio Lab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krolowicz. This is Radio Lab. Today, our topic is limits. 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 Yep. How far can you take your your body? We've done that. We, we've exhausted that. I think so. So let's go uptown yeah. to the limits of the brain. To tackle just a piece of that question, let's just take a look at memory. Okay. All right. Great. And we're going to do that by telling a story. <laughs> a story that we heard from Jonah Lehrer. You know, frequent guest on the show, author of the books, Proust was a Neuroscientist, How We Decide. And the story begins in a small um, town in the old Soviet Union back in the 1920s. And it's about a newspaper reporter named Mr. S. At least that's what we're going to call him. Yeah, so Mr. S is a newspaper reporter. And one day, his boss starts yelling at him because his boss gives out these assignments, talks to the whole newsroom, and he notices that Mr. S never takes notes. And this drives his boss crazy because his boss is, you know, saying all these things they have to report on and Mr. S just never writes them down. And so his boss calls him to his office and says, are you lazy? Do you not take this job seriously? And Mr. S responds, well, I just remember it all. And the editor says, come on. And he sort of quizzes him. He says, what did I assign you yesterday? And his boss gives him this quiz. And sure enough, he remembers everything. He remembers everything the editor said word for word. And the editor's thinking, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. I mean, he's not a great reporter, but he has something queer going on in his head. So he decides to send him to a famous medical doctor in Moscow, A.R. Luria, 
Who is Luria? Luria, uh, well, Luria is a classical figure in, in, in neuropsychology and in psychology in general. And, and who is this? Tell us your name. El Haddad Goldberg. I'm a clinical professor at NYU Medical School. Goldberg knew Luria. Uh, Luria was my mentor. I worked very closely with him. Not only was he a student of Luria, yes, yes. Luria gave him a present once. Ah, this is this book. What is it? The, the book about the original book about Mr. S. This book is one of the great works of early neuroscience. Wow. Given me by Luria, that's him, yeah. Oh, so we're going to the right guy. You have an autographed copy by the guy. It is a beautiful and almost novelistic description of what happened to Mr. S. And the original title was A Little Book About Big Memory. Yeah, what is it in Russian? Okay, so Jonah, this guy, Mr. S, goes to this psychologist, Luria. Now, what does Luria do with him? Luria, during the book, talks about how he wrote random numbers on a blackboard. Numbers like one, eight, six, four, three, about 50 numbers. And asks Mr. S to remember them. Okay, here we are on page 16. S would study the material on the board. For about uh, three minutes. Close his eyes, open them again for a moment. Okay, done. And with that, he would relove the series... Precisely six six eight zero four three two one eight seven two seven four. Wow, that's like a superpower. Yeah, and and this impresses Larry. He says so. He takes it up to the next level. Then Luria uh, gives him, you know, this 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 incredible assortment of memory tasks. You know, everything from memorize Dante's Inferno. Um, to Memorize to... Dante's Inferno, <laughs> the whole thing? No, no. Well, no. not the whole thing, just opening stanzas. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva But you know, here's the really weird thing. Mm. Mr. S does not read Italian, speak Italian. He had no idea what he was talking about. And yet, the thing he memorizes, he gets word perfect. Yeah. And not only that, he was tested 15 years after he'd memorized those stanzas, and... He still got it right. Yeah. Oh, wow. He remembered everything. He had time. Tar- you say everything? What do you mean by I it? mean everything, okay? So if he, suppose he interviewed you 10 years ago, he would have remembered the color of your sweater, whether you held the mic in the left hand or in the right hand, he would have remembered everything. everything. I mean everything. Luria never talks about a, a computational limit on Mr. S's memory. As an experimenter, I soon found myself in the state verging on utter confusion. And they simply had to admit that the capacity of his memory had no distinct limits. How can there be no limits? Because I'm thinking about the size of a normal head. It's like 50 centimeters or something in diameter. The brain is three pounds. It's a very confined little situation. How could there be no limits? I wish there was a good answer. Nobody has any idea why it is he had this infinite capability for recall. Um, What it does suggest, though, is that the brain has a capability um, to store an incredible amount of stuff. How much stuff, though? How much can you jam into a human brain? I don't don't think anyone knows. I mean, so let's just stop. Let's, Let's call it quits. No, 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 no. Forget that. In fact, (laughs) let me take you to a competition which investigates that very question. We're going to change locations from, where were we just now? Russia? We were in Russia. From Russia, 1920s, to, you ready for this? London, 2009. 
Here we are at the World Memory Championships. The World what? The, the World Memory Championships. Just go with me for a second. Okay. So we're in a hotel in central London. The lobby is crowded with the world's best memorizers. So what was your name? We got people here from like Oman. Granti Raj. I'm Dr. Granti. Uh, Manchester. Hello, I'm Emil Hawk. Netherlands. Yeah, Rick de Young. Even have a team of Chinese girls in the corner doing a cheer. And what are we doing here? Well, the people here are a little bit like the guy you were describing, Mr. S. They are walking experiments in brain stuffing. The difference is, they're perfectly normal human beings. Could you start by introducing yourself? Okay. Like, take this guy. I'm Ben Pridmore. I'm the reigning world memory champion. I'm 33 years old and I live in Nottingham. Ben can take a string of numbers that is 1,400 numbers long. Random numbers. Random numbers. And he can commit it to memory instantly. He can take a deck of cards and memorize it in 24 seconds. Wow. Better. Yeah. We've not actually reached, you know, any kind of upper limit of what it's possible to memorize yet. Everybody's still consistently improving. So here's what we did. We, we found a guy. Oh, I'm, uh, my name's Ronnie White, and I'm the 2009 USA Memory Champion. He's a, a Navy reservist from Dallas, Texas. As a matter of fact, uh, I had to get permission from my unit to come here. And we followed him around the competition. What's about to happen? Well, the competition's about to start. You know, you know it's day one. It should be a fun day. Because we wanted to know, like, how do you do it? How do you take the limits of a normal brain and completely shatter them? So I walked in the room that day wearing my Michael Phelps t-shirt. You know, it said <laughs> USA on the front. Okay, your one minute of mental preparation time starts now. The, the final minutes before you start an event, you're sitting in your chair and you're just collecting your thoughts. I put on my military glasses. I got some, they look like Drew Carey's glasses. And I put those on to remind me, hey, remain calm. You know, I wore those all throughout my tour in Afghanistan. And if you're going down a, a road and, and uh, you're needing to be on the lookout for IEDs, but you're not calm, you're nervous and jittery, you could die. Then I'll put on some noise-canceling headsets. Then I just close my eyes, sit in my chair. Ten seconds. Neurons on the ready. Neurons on the ready, they say. At that moment, 60 people turn over papers. On these pieces of paper are numbers. Six, seven, one. Nothing but numbers. Numbers, 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 numbers forever. And like, what are they doing? Well, they have to memorize them. So they're just, just seeing all these people staring at pieces of paper? Yeah, absolute silence. Heads down, 60 heads down, staring at numbers. Six, seven. But here's the, here's the interesting thing. Uh-huh. In their heads, three. they're not seeing three. numbers. Four, Instead, four, those numbers nine, are turning into eight. Uh, George Bush, four, Florence two, Nightingale, uh, one, Randy Richardson, two, he's a friend, one, Barney Fife, six, a rash, eight, Michael Jordan, two, uh, Chuck Norris, six, Donnie Brasco, two, two, Bush, oh, no, that was one, Boy George, three, Joe T, five, Martha Stewart, six, George Michael, seven, uh, Ben Franklin, one, Chuck three, Norris, Anne three, Frank, uh, three, Indiana Jones, five, my friend Ronnie, four, King Tut. Six, uh, I have a person assigned to every number from 0 to 99. And then I have a verb assigned to every person from 0 to 99. And then I have a noun assigned to every digit. So you're just taking person, verbs, and objects. Self-memorization. Please put the cards down. And you're putting them all together, and they really don't make sense. What, what were some of the things you thought about? 
give me an example. The images I saw? Yeah. Uh, I saw Albert Einstein riding a roller coaster into a bunch of fog. Five, nine, three, seven, eight, seven. That was one of the images. Um, I saw a Fat Albert cartoon character uh, driving a car. Eight, one, nine, nine. Um, I saw a Victoria's Secret model, which was one of my favorite pictures. <laughs> I saw a Victoria's Secret model shooting a gun. Hey, Ronnie. Uh, stuff like that. <laughs> so there seems stuff to like be that. something about turning data into pictures that well, makes that data etch. It becomes easier to hold on to. Do you have any idea why? Do I have any idea why? You, you, no. I'm asking. But Jonah might. I don't know. I, I would just be purely speculating here. But the visual cortex has been hugely enhanced in human evolution. It's, the, you know, the rear half of our brain. Because we know that memories, you know, there is no memory center of the brain. It's, it's distributed in our sensory areas. It might make a little sense that given that we've got this huge chunk of visual cortex, that it's easier to store memory there. Okay, so let me ask you, how did Ron's visual cortex do in the big contest? Well, Ron, Ron didn't actually do so well. He didn't? Mm-mm. He was trying to memorize these 12 decks of cards, and he had constructed this whole, like, uh, stack of pictures, but he, he did them in the wrong order, and he screwed it up. He lost? He lost really badly, unfortunately. I was shocked. I mean, I was just shocked. That, that knocked me out of any possible... You know who, by the way, who didn't lose? Remember Mr. S, the guy we started this conversation with? Yeah, sure. This is interesting. It turns out that Mr. S also had little pictures and little characters running around in his mind. But unlike Ron, he never asked for the pictures. No, he couldn't. You know, even when he wanted not to do it, he couldn't help but do it. Meaning what? He was born that way. He had this tremendous memory without any effort and without any mnemonic techniques. This is the point. Do you mean his mind made the pictures automatically? Yeah. Mr. S had a condition called synesthesia, where your senses get kind of tangled up. So he heard voices in terms of colors. Right. Colors of voices. Textures. Smells of words. And his numbers weren't just numbers. Sometimes he imagines walking through a crowded Moscow street and the numbers are scattered along the way. And so he describes how I'm walking down the street, there's the number one. This is a proud, well-built man. Then I make a right turn onto the side street, there's the number two. is a high-spirited woman. Uh, Then I make a left turn, there's the number three. A gloomy person. Why? I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows exactly what accounts for the individual associations of synesthesia. They just exist. Mm. But they're this extra scaffold for Mr. S's memory to cling to. Wow, so he's like Ron, except he's using all his senses to remember numbers. It, yeah, exactly. So um, getting back to the plot, mm-hmm. what, did, uh, what did he do with this talent? He became a traveling circus freak, basically. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like, well, circus. Mr. Memory. Professional mnemonist, yeah. He gave up journalism to perform for crowds. Like, just imagine it went something, I don't know, like this. Ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome the captain of cognition, the master of memory, the spectacular Shereshevsky. Imagine this is a big crowd. He walks onto the stage. He gives them an invitation. He asks them to shout random numbers. 58, 25, 24, 57, 542, 53. Then, after a little while, the crowd quiets down. 
And Mr. S would close his eyes and step forward. And he would remember them all. This was his job? Yeah. And it wasn't just numbers, by the way. He was thrown weird phrases, nonsense sounds, nouns, verbs, and sometimes he'd do four shows a day. And the more he did, the more obvious it became that this business of his, it had um, a downside. Here's where we're going to finally reach maybe the limits question that we're really examining in this program. He would hear all these nonsense phrases being thrown at him, and they would build up in his mind. And it's important to note, this was incredibly frustrating for Mr. S. He had a constant stream of memories pouring into his brain. He couldn't get any of it out. And on top of that, as they piled up, the memories began to kind of mush together. One would trigger another, and then another, and then another. It was this suffocating web of association. The moment he encountered anything, Everything, even the remotely related in his past to that something, was immediately evoked in his memory. For example, let's suppose a man in the audience stands up and he shouts out the word dog. For a split second, Mr. S sees a dog, which suggests another dog, and then another dog, and then every dog he ever saw. And the man suggests not just that man, but the man beside him and other men and men that he knew. And All the other competitions were a similar-looking man stood up and shouted something similar. He was barrage, he was deluged, with all kinds of memories, totally unrelated. Everything layered, one layered on top of, of the other. Well, that's horrible. I agree. Oh, that would be a bloody nightmare. The mind isn't just interested in storing information. It really wants to be able to get meaning out of that information, out of those memories. And that actually seems to be turned off, to be inhibited by remembering too much. In other words, there really is a limit in our heads. It's a different kind of limit, really. Not the limitless ability to remember one number after another, but a precious balance in your head. If you remember too much, you will make no sense of the world. It's weird. I've never actually thought of making sense of the world as being an an act of negation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's very much that. But it kind of makes sense because if you think about, like, living here in New York City, all the people you bump into, if you remembered every freaking one, like, you wouldn't be able to have a relationship with your wife or your husband, your child, because they just be lost in this thick crowd in your head. Just like, get them out, out. Somehow that's the balance. The act of forgetting is crucial to create preciousness. Although I do wish I had a better memory. What's your name again? Hey, this is Chris Callahan from Berkeley, California. And Radio Lab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery. Hey, grown-ups, The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery perfect for the whole family. 
Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get Fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krilwich. This is Radio Lab, and this next segment began with a simple question. Mm-hmm. Seeing as our topic so far has been limits, and sure. we've done body, and we did the brain. Now we're going to go really big. Yeah, yeah. So we called up Steve mm. Strogatz, mathematician at Cornell University, frequent guest on the show, and we asked him, "Are there limits to human knowledge?" Yeah, and his answer sent us on a little adventure. Um, the the yeah. Is there anything that's at the limits of our knowledge is a question that a lot of us scientists worry about. And and, uh, certainly the 20th century taught us that there are many things that limit our knowledge. For instance, that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in quantum physics showed us that you can't know the position and momentum of a subatomic particle at the same time. You just can't do it. It's not a matter of not having good enough instruments or not being clever enough. It's just a fundamental barrier that nature puts in your way. Um, In logic, Gödel's theorem tells us you can't prove certain things even though they're true. So there are all kinds of limits, but those seem a bit remote from everyday experience. And yet, I think there are really important limits on our knowledge that we're all familiar with. What I'm thinking of here is our inability to think about big numbers. Because with your fingers, you've got 10, you know, normally. So we're good at 10. We're barely good at 100, and once you start getting to thousands, millions, billions, and trillions, it gets hazier and hazier. When you hear now about the trillions of dollars in the deficit or whatever it is, the debt, you know, we don't, that means nothing. How, how are you supposed to think about that? Now, when you ask why can't we understand the common cold but we can put a person on the moon, It has to do with large numbers. Not just large numbers of numbers, says Steve, but large numbers of things interacting. That there are so many genes involved and so many biochemical reactions involved. Our brains are limited. Our memories are very limited. And so um, I worry a little bit that that we might be approaching the end of our ability to have insight into certain kinds of questions. What Steve means by the word insight is not like he found the answer. It's like that. It's like a feeling. Right. You know, like that, oh, I get the it. The feeling you get when you really understand the answer. Yeah, that satisfying feeling that I can see the reasoning. I can actually feel it in my bones. That's, that's a very pleasurable feeling, but um, one that we may not always be able to enjoy. I mean, you can see the space. Good uh, luck. We weren't really quite sure how to feel about this. Right. But well, then Steve said, yeah, don't take my word for it. Talk to these guys that work down the hall for me. 
You'll see. Yeah, we can we can go right ahead. Cool. Can you guys introduce yourself? Tell me uh, who I'm talking to. Yeah, so uh, my name is Hod Lipson. My name is Michael Schmidt. I'm a PhD student. And uh, I'm a roboticist. And Hod and Mike have developed this thing, which Mike does make you wonder if Steve's right. It's a computer. Yes. Actually, many. A whole tower of computers that are all grinding away and performing calculations. Actually, when you get down to it, it's just a piece of software. But they've named it. The Eureka. Because that's what it was designed to do, to have Eureka moments. Uh, ma- let, uh, maybe a, a kind of simpler example. And the story of Eureka let's begins pretty so simply. Let's think of a, with a, a regular pendulum, okay? With the pendulum. Just one of these things you see hanging off a grandfather clock. Okay, I've got a regular pendulum swinging in my mind. Okay, swinging left and right. Now, says Hod, double it. Instead of a string connected to a ball, make it a string connected to a ball connected to another string connected to another ball. Which is basically like a double pendulum. The cool thing about this is you just put it up, you, you lift it up and let it go. And what you'll get, says Mike, is chaos. This really crazy behavior. Instead of nice and even, now you got random. It's almost impossible to actually try to predict where this thing will move. So what they did was they got a camera, connected it to Eureka, and basically just had Eureka watch this thing, you know, move about crazily. And then they asked the computer a really simple question. Can you make some kind of sense out of this erratic behavior? Like, is there something in this system that always stays the same? Tell me what about these pendulums over time is not changing? Because with everything, there's got to be some kind of logic in there. So you're looking for a law, basically. You're looking for the law of the double pendulum. Yes, that's the idea. So Eureka is there watching this pendulum. It was about 3 a.m. in the lab. And it's basically spitting out all of these different guesses. It's formulating hypotheses. It's getting closer. It closer. And then onto the screen pops this simple formula. F equals M A. What is F equals M A? Is that actually the law that... F equals M A is Newton's law of motion. The Isaac Newton. That's Sir Isaac to you. It's a basic law of physics. And one of the greatest discoveries in the history of human thinking. Took it about a day, 24 hours. But, but the interesting thing is that it came up with this thing without knowing anything about physics, nothing. That's why we kind of we think that this algorithm might be able to find new laws that we don't know about yet. In fact, once word got out about Eureka, that's when the emails started. A couple of emails a day. From scientists all over the place who were like, Hey, do you mind if we borrow your robot? For what kinds of stuff? Um, Anything you can uh, think of, from uh, trying to predict behaviors of cows in a herd, to particle physics, to the stock market. And that, and this is when we get to Steve's point about the limits of insight, that's when they met this this guy. guy. My name is Garol Sowell. Garol is a biologist. At the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He got in touch with Hod. And he said, I have this amazing data which is single-cell dynamics. Meaning he's got this tiny little thing. It's a simple bacteria. Really basic. And he's been collecting this information on how it works. On its inside. How things go up and down. Certain nutrients increase, certain nutrients decrease over time, just like a pendulum. But the thing is, in a cell, it's like thousands of pendulums. There's so many parts. Genes turning on and off. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands. Proteins turning on other genes, nutrients going up and down. It's this crazy quilt of complicated feedback. And he wanted to know, inside of this cell, how are all of these things related? 
I mean, we can measure it all. We can see things going up and down and all that. But what are the rules? What are the rules? Yeah. And this, he says, is the problem for biology. Biology is one of the least well-understood systems compared to, let's say, chemistry and physics. They're still lacking the basics. So we said, look, Mr. Robot, <laughs> can you tell us what you think are sort of the important principles governing this organism and maybe detect things that were hidden from us? So he sent us the data and uh, we analyzed it. And, uh... Well, okay, let's yeah, not... Let, yeah, so what happened? Suddenly, equations starting popping out. Almost immediately. The robot came back to us and said, okay, here's a set of two equations that describe your data. Do you remember by any chance what the what the actual equation was? Not, not that we'd understand it, but just sort of to hear it said out loud? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't have my Rain Man skills uh, <laughs> developed to that degree yet. The important can, uh, thing is that the equation was telling him things like when this protein goes up, this other thing always goes down. And when that thing goes down, this gene turns on and then does a loop-de-loop. And when he went to his cell to check all this out, the equation was right. These equations match the data. And in fact, they explain new data. These equations could even predict what the cell was about to do. But... Hold the champagne. There's just one little problem here. The formulas check out, but... We don't know what they mean. You don't know what they mean. Right. Meaning they don't know why these equations work. Why? why when this goes up, does that go down? Why when that goes up, does this go sideways? Why? I had to first look at this and try to make sense of it. Uh, we said like, oh, okay, I think we understand. And we're like, oh, maybe we don't. We think that we're close to understanding it. But you know, now we're in this bizarre situation. We can't even publish it right now because we can't just publish a equation without explaining it. So in the end, they're in this awkward position where they've got the answer, but they don't have the insight. And I think it's a preview of what's to come in science. The more we turn to computers with these big questions, the more they'll give us answers that we just don't understand. We'll be faced with this challenge of having to find ways to get a computer to explain what it found. But that will leave us, if this really happens, in some weird position as bystanders where we're, we're sort of listening to the oracle but not really understanding the answer. Is there going to be a time when we, we can't cut it anymore? We've had this this window in human history when we could not just know things, but actually understand them. That is, you could know why they were true, not just know, but to know why. And that's a beautiful moment in human history, but I, I feel like it may only be a moment. Well, I don't really see it quite that, that sort of sad and dramatic, because <laughs> at the end, there will be simple principles to describe even the most complicated of processes. So you have a bias that prevents you from feeling the kind of despair that Steve feels and that we were hoping you would feel. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I have a positive outlook. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just wondering about the we. Look what we have discovered, you'll say when you're an old man with your robot sitting there in a dress next to you. <laughs> and the robot will be holding your hand, but that will be a cold hand. <laughs> And Jad and I will be thinking, I don't know, who's the we here? I say, I, well, I would say we is sort of knowledge. I'm just thirsty for understanding and thirsty for knowledge. Me and the cold hand holding my hand, <laughs> we've accumulated and contributed to the overall understanding of something that we thought maybe 50 years ago wasn't possible. And that would be something that would make me happy.
Hi, this is Steve Strogatz. Radio Lab is produced by Jad Abumrad. Our staff includes Ellen Horn, Michael Raphael, Soren Wheeler, Lulu Miller, and Pat Walters, with help from Adi Narayan, Tim Howard, and Sharon Shattuck. Special thanks to Stephen Auerbach. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. End of mailbox.